Cultivating Place is made possible in part by generous support from the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. As February is upon us, we turn from a love letter to one place, to a labor of love, in conserving some of the fruits of humans' labors in many places on Earth. Apples. We're in conversation with Jude Schunemeyer, who with his wife Addie has spent decades discovering, researching, documenting, protecting, restoring, and propagating the rich diversity of heritage apple varieties in Colorado's southwesternmost Montezuma County. The diversity of apple genetics in this region traces back 150 years or more, and as apple tree pruning and apple scion wood selection and grafting seasons are all upon us, Jude is with us this week to share more about how the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project affectionately referred to as MORP, is preserving historic orchards and simultaneously cultivating food, economic, and environmental vigor in their region. Jude, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to Cultivating Place. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I've introduced you in this very simple way. Would you please introduce yourself to listeners as to, you know, how you describe who you are and the importance perhaps of plants and cultivation in that way you describe who you are? Sure. I am Jude Schoenemeyer. My wife, Addie, and I started Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project sort of unintentionally a little over 20 years ago. And then more intentionally here, it got formed as an actual project of a 501c3. Uh, we use an umbrella about 2014. Um, so we've been doing this a while. We have a lot of different parts to our job. Um, a big part of mine is in the nursery and grafting trees and, and growing trees out. Um, it's something Addie and I both do a lot of. We also work in old orchards, document old orchards, hang out a lot um, with old trees, and we work at trying to restore, trying to find trees that are believed to be extinct, that were great varieties a long time ago and were beloved cultivars, but with the commoditization of, of crops, apple markets specifically, a lot of these cultivars went extinct or near extinct. Yeah. We're fortunate that we live in a place with a lot of old trees, um, an unusual amount of trees and an unusual amount of intact or semi-intact orchards here in Montezuma County. Yeah. So what I think, because I think we're, we're going to get into all about the, the project itself, but what I think I hear you saying is that you are uh, an orchardist. You are a tree grower and grafter would you call yourself a farmer would you call yourself a historian would you call yourself both yeah we we do both they they go hand in hand mm -hmm. we farm our main farming is is fruit crops um at our own farm and then at the several more orchards that we have we we grow more than growing fruit though we actually grow trees and we actually grow cyan wood to grow trees okay. you know apples apples are grafted they're they're clonally propagated apples are too tight from seeds so once you find a whether you find a seedling that's great that that you've discovered along the county road or a ditch bank or you find a uh a apple you know that's 
growing in an orchard that no one knows what it is anymore, the only way you're going to preserve that is through grafting. So that's, yeah, I feel like that's a, a lot of what we do. We There's more parts to our job than that. Over the last few years, it's gotten much more complex in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which we're going to unpack all of that. But before we we move into unpacking everything you just talked about, take us back a little bit to where you were born and raised and maybe some of the early influences that led you along this path to this being not only your livelihood, but your your great passion, Jude. Sure. I was born up in Denver, you know, and I think like a lot of people, we are surrounded by plants. We spend time around plants. You walk out in the yard when you're a kid, you go play, you know, play behind a bush or, or you know, around a tree. But they're, they're sort of background in your life. You're not as aware of them. I think kids are a little more aware in some ways. Mm. Um, but, but plants really are background for most people. When I was living in the mountains years ago, up, up around Leadville in the high country, I would climb a lot. I spent a lot of time in the back country, mm. um, in the forests, in, in up high. And I was always in awe of the teeny little flowers that you would see growing up above Timberline in the harshest of environments. And it just amazed me that, that plants could live there. I went and started doing wildfire down in Arizona on a hotshot crew. Addie and I both were in the wildfire mode doing, doing big fires on shot crews. I would spend winters in Leadville, then I'd go to Arizona for the summer. And with that, I got to see a whole different level of plants and a whole different understanding of plants rather than the alpine and subalpine worlds. Now this was the, especially the Sonoran Desert a lot and a lot of uh, chaparral areas as well too. And there were big ponderosa forests around there as well in mixed forest. When you're doing wildfire and when you're doing wildfire on a hotshot crew, you have to understand fuels. The plants are the fuels. And if you don't understand those, you are living in really dangerous places. And and you have to be aware of what you're in, how fast they're going to burn, how those plants are going to re- interact with wind and flame. And so you spend an amazing amount of time. I think if you're if you're smart of it, you spend an amazing amount of time looking at plants and getting to know them and understanding what they are. So having, having done, you know, spent a lot of time in the backcountry climbing and been aware of plants there and then spending a lot of time in fire and, and learning those plant palettes down in the Southwest, it made you stop and really look at plants. It made you think about plants a lot and understand them in, in ways you probably wouldn't if you were growing them. Then once upon a time, Addie and I, once, once we met, we were at a point where we realized wildfire on hotshot crews is an amazing experience, especially if you're on a good, safe crew. But it's really difficult to be in a relationship when you're on a shot crew. You know, you're on fires constantly. You're going a lot. Right. And it's a great thing for younger people. And it gets physically much more difficult as you get older. So we moved to Cortez. I was working till attack up in Mesa Verde, still doing fire at. He was working in, in natural resources and doing things. And we just decided we were ready for a change. So a bit on a whim, we leased out this neighborhood nursery in, in Cortez. The nursery had been there for over 50 years, wow. in a very small, very small place. With the nursery, we inherited a lot of the older Montezuma County customers that went with the nursery. And these were folks that would tell us about their grandparents' orchards. And they would give us uh, copies of old Montezuma County fair records. And 
over time. And they would ask us to get them trees, you know, cultivars that were not necessarily extinct like yellow transparent, but you weren't going to go find them in any normal nursery or a box store. And so that made us, this was all in the world before internet. So we had to use books and catalogs and it got us good at researching and right. good at finding difficult things to find. Yeah. Now, wait, I'm going to stop you because you're, you're, you're like running right ahead with, with the whole story all at once. But oh, sure. I have a couple of questions I, I want to kind of go back to. So, you know, your, your, what years would it have been that you two met on the hotshot crew or, and were doing that work? We were, this was late 90s. We probably met, we met up in Mesa Verde yeah. in the fall of 1997, I want to say. Addie and I were on different shot crews. She was up in Alaska that year. I was in Arizona. And and we wound up meeting there at Mesa Verde doing post-burn fire rehab work mm. out in the backcountry around sites, around some of the archaeological sites. Right, right. Um, there, and, and that's when we met. I actually had, we were, the the crew I was on, Pace and Hot Shots, was actually on that fire at Mesa Verde the year before in 1996. And so the overhead there at the park sort of knew us. So when they were looking for people, you know, we had a pretty good in there because we had been up there. And then Addie actually was a park rat. She she spent time growing up in Mesa Verde, among other parks. Um, you know, so she was known there. Addie's mother was actually our archaeologist one day um, on one of the fires. Oh, that's um, so great. Yeah, so I actually met Addie's mother before I met Addie, sort of, although I, Addie was also on an Arizona hotshot crew for a while. And so, uh, you know, we kind of knew she existed. When you work with the other crew, some you, you sort of have an idea of right. other people on the cruise. Right, right. And so you, um, you know, coming from, your experiences going from, which is a little hysterical to me, um, having been born and raised in Colorado, that you vacillated between Leadville, one of the like consistently coldest places in the United States, to uh, the Sonoran Desert, one of the you know hottest places in the United States. So you have this extreme of experience and this extreme of plant communities that you are paying attention to, getting to know, learning how they burn and how they grow and develop fuel, which is clearly contributing to your just general understanding and intimacy of how these plants' lives go, which which is going to contribute to how you then learn to grow them particularly well. Am I am I right in that correlation, Jude? It, it in a weird way it did work that way you know in a weird way it did that work that way i think because of how we had to interact with plants on fire right it taught us a lot of being good observers of plants and and that's a really important thing with any plants you're going to grow is, is you got to stop and look at them and get to know them right right you know i will tell you also during this whole time i was also a paramedic for years and years and doing that you also learn to look at things holistically you're always trying to look and understand what the underlying problem is with something and, and it makes you a good observer as well and i think so much about working with plants is being able to observe it's being able to learn from them plants mostly know how to be plants mm -hmm. they tend to be very good at it um <laughs> you know yeah in 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 it's sort of through observing them and deciding what you know what's right for them or letting them decide what's right for them they'll they'll tell you an awful lot 
mean, we see this constantly in the nursery. You know, we're working with a lot of cultivars off of old trees where we aren't getting really good quality cyan wood. Cyan is, of course, the small part of the tree that you take cuttings from. Ideally, it's last year's growth. We don't always get clean, beautiful cyan on old, old trees. A lot of times we get toothpick size. And so you really have to be patient with how you work and graft, and then you have to be patient with with growing the trees out. Right. You know, grafting is part of the skill, but nursing the trees is also part of the skill. So yeah. I absolutely believe a lot of our background, even though it's sort of counterintuitive, I do think it helped a lot with what we do. So fast forward, you and you and Addie become a, a, a life team, and you take on this nursery Describe for listeners where Montezuma County is and and where you are physically located and what that what that climate is like because it's you know in that kind of edge of the Great Basin um, you are in a sort of interesting kind of high desert so you get kind of the best of both kind of climates that you were familiar with a- a- am I right in that yeah that's correct so montezuma county is down in four corners it's it's four corners are where utah arizona new mexico and colorado all come together our farm is down in a canyon mccalmo canyon which is just it's at the base of ute peak and we are uh pretty close geographically you got to go over the mountain but we're really close to four corners itself this is on the eastern edge of the colorado plateau the colorado plateau is a large table of land Mm -hmm. that goes from here in western colorado across past the grand canyon sort of to to south south nevada there where it transitions into the mojave and then it drops down to the mugion rim by Payson, where i used to do fire is is in the, the mugion rim sort of goes through arizona and new mexico and that's where the colorado plateau itself drops just to the north of us are the san juans the san juan mountains are about four thousand square miles of mountains um they have some of the more beautiful sharp ragged yeah nasty beautiful mountains in colorado um telluride is close to us it's about 80 miles away so we have a world of microclimates here and that's something you really have to get to know and and get to understand cortez itself is is an elevation of 6200 feet so it's about a thousand feet higher than denver is even though it's southwest it still is a higher elevation right and a lot of what's around us is is higher than that. McElmo, where we are, is a bit lower, and it it drops because it is a canyon. That this desert canyon mesa mountain environment just creates millions and millions of little microclimates. And with us, with the orchards, over time we got to appreciate how good people were at finding really really beneficial places to plant the orchards places where airflow moved through where cold water would drop off um you know where cold air would drop off i mean and and so you you see how great a place is the there were to plant orchards here this is cultivating place jude and addy schunemeyer are the co-founders of the montezuma orchard restoration project based in the far southwest corner of colorado it is dedicated to preserving colorado's fruit growing heritage and restoring an orchard culture and economy in that region 
All told, Addie and Jude have spent decades discovering, researching, documenting, protecting, restoring, and propagating the rich diversity of heritage apple varieties in this corner of Colorado. Stay with us, we'll be back for more with Jude. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. So I say this all the time. I write it all the time. My work at almost all times is focused on this. We, as gardeners, are such innovative and dedicated growers of the world, aesthetically, environmentally, culturally, economically. But these intersections are enlivened, all of them, and so apparent in this growing story of Jude and Addie Schunemeyer and the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project, aren't they? Gah. It makes me want to go out and plant so many more heritage fruit trees. What about you? I'm Jennifer Jewell, this is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with Jude Schunemeyer of Colorado's Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project, preserving and sharing forward a vision for southwestern Colorado and a thriving apple orchard culture and economy based on the legendary quality and diversity of Montezuma Valley fruits. As we come back, Jude is sharing more about the history of orchards on the western slope of Colorado. As we started researching history of Montezuma County orchards, we realized that these didn't happen in a bubble, that they were part of a bigger picture in Colorado. Mm -hmm. The first orchards that were planted in Colorado happened with the Pikes Peak Gold Rush. Up until that point, Colorado was mostly considered a place to go around. People who were either following the Santa Fe Trail down into New Mexico post-Spanish independence, when all of this was part of Spain, the Spaniards didn't want anything to do with the Americans. But once this became Mexico, Mexico opened for trade and the Anglo-Americans started pouring in here. There were, of course, people already living here at this time, you know, whether it was the Cheyenne and the Arapaho on the front range, the Utes were all across the mountains here and across the western slopes. So this was not a barren land by any means. No. Um, as the Pikes Peak Gold Rush happened, settlers poured into Colorado here. This is 1859, and Denver sprung up, and, and towns all along the front range and up into the mountains started springing up, and people were mining for gold everywhere. Um, there were some people right off the bat, like Jesse Frazier down in Florence, down in Canyon City area, south of Denver, that realized that there was good money to be made for apples. I think somebody sold apples on Blake Street in Denver for a buck and a quarter a piece back in 1859. That would be about $50 per apple by today's standards. So wow. there, was a, there was a reason for people to do it. At the same time, most people thought anyone trying to grow fruit in Colorado was insane. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought that the... the uh, Altitude was too high, winters were too cold, too dry, too whatever. So there was a lot of experimentation Mm -hmm. initially, and it took people 
a lot of dogged persistence to be able to pull off an orchard economy and to grow out an orchard to really do a phenomenal orchard economy starting on the front range. By 1890-ish, codling moth came in. You know, there's this persistent myth that goes on that everyone repeats that prohibition caused the apple trees to all be cut out. We have yet to see a single documented piece of evidence anywhere in this country showing that apple trees were cut out in mass or even occasionally because of prohibition. Um, there's a lot of reasons why they wouldn't have, the least of which was there was a pandemic just before prohibition and vinegar was a cleaning source and apples were a great source for vinegar. Um, but as codling moth became endemic on the front range, growers felt like they were just growing their crops to feed and propagate more codling moths. So the orchards, especially around Denver, started to be cut out for development or trees were occasionally just left in place, you know. So that's why you see a tree in somebody's backyard and in the subdivisions up there or, or you know, in the area around Denver or even in the city. At that same time, the Utes for a long time, the Western Slope was considered a barren wasteland best left to the Utes. Um, but there were people that looked at it and realized that you could probably grow fruit there. When And, and so as the Utes were forcibly removed from the Western Slope here, the, the American settlers, the, you know, those who we will call Americans, moved in took their land and started planting trees. One of the more shocking things we saw doing historical research on our first first of many trips up to CSU archives in Fort Collins was a quote about how the trees were planted in the tracks of the freshly departing youths, and it just shocked us. Um, so much of this history is, is just glossed over now and absolutely forgotten. Um, with with people moving onto the area of around Grand Junction, they also started moving down into the more remote Montezuma Valley down here. Right about 18, 1890 is when, uh, it was maybe 1889, a tunnel was put in. There's a narrow ridge that separates the Dolores River, which comes from Lizardhead Pass in between us and Telluride, and it goes down to Dolores, and then the river makes a big cut, and then it goes back up, it makes a big turn, and then it goes back up towards Grand Junction, rejoining the Colorado River closer to Moab there, but sort of by arches a little bit outside of Moab. The folks down here realized that they could put a tunnel through this fairly narrow ridge and and put water into the Montezuma Valley and, and start irrigating here. The Montezuma Valley had been farmland for a long time. Um, you know, we forget this, but but probably, you know, 800,000 years ago, there was maybe maybe upwards of a quarter million people living in living in what's now Montezuma County farming here. And we see a lot of overlap of where people chose to put orchards and and what were prehistoric uh, farming ground there. Yeah, so with the with the removal of the Utes and this new opportunities here for people to come down, and at this point in time, Codling Mass hadn't made it to either Grand Junction area nor to Montezuma County. And so people started planting out orchards. And when they started planting out these orchards, these were in a distinct period of time of, of a certain style of planting. 
And what that means for us is this, this period in the 1800s when the first orchards in Colorado and the first orchards here on the Western Slope were planted, people were still planting really diverse orchards. Right. They might have 20 different cultivars in their orchard. By the 1920s, with the rise of extension services, agricultural colleges, the the extension services were really top down and they were telling telling growers get rid of these 20 different varieties you don't need this you only need three varieties right, you right. Know, or four varieties in your orchards for us at this altitude that was somewhat devastating um some years you would get these humongous crops which which could be economic powerhouses if you had the labor to pick them again with the old orchards you would have such a diversity of trees that you would be able to, a normal family could go and pick some of this, some of this, some of this, as there were the different ripenings. Right. Once orchards moved into the more monoculture, you needed a bigger labor source. If you've got 400 trees, all of the same variety, variety yeah. or two or three varieties that are ripening pretty close to each other, you need bigger labor resource. So two questions on this. The first one is, what was the diversity that were in the area prior to the extension agencies sort of, you know, contracting their focus down to two or three? And then the second part of that question is, what were those two or three that they were asking people to focus on at that time? We've we've identified, so the first question we've identified over, it's probably around 500 uh, different cultivars of okay. apples yep. that were grown in Colorado historically. And this is sort of pre-1930, 40-ish or 19, you know, pre-1940 varieties, but really we're looking at pre-1920. About half of those are now considered extinct. We feel like we probably have found a few of those that we don't know what they are, but we know we've preserved them. By 1920, the extension service was telling people to plant delicious Rome and Jonathan specifically, you know, some some golden delicious for pollinators. Occasionally, they would plant, uh, you know, some some type of a stamen wine sap or a stamen red, a newer type of, of wine sap in there too. But mostly they were they were just those three varieties. And that's why that's why the delicious got so much prominence. When Stark released that, you know, we see it pretty early on in the county fair records here. It was just another promising new variety. Mm. It wasn't anything anybody thought was going to blow away. And and people need to remember the old fashioned delicious is not the same as what you'd see at the grocery store there were so many delicious, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands, millions of trees across the country planted of a single variety to where more sports, an individual anomalous limb that would produce an apple that was maybe redder, you know, got redder sooner or might have spurs that produce more fruit per for a smaller size tree. People would go out and find those and then they'd sell it to Stark and Stark would patent it and release the latest, greatest new variety of delicious. Those were grown for shipping ability. They were grown for the ability to pick them while they were still unripe flesh, but red in color and then put them in, in cold storage for long periods of time. It's not like the old delicious that was intentionally grown for its really high quality flavor. Right, right. So tell me about the historic orchard at Capitol Reef National Park in Utah, which I've seen before, but where does that fit into this history, Jude? 
so Capitol Reef over on the Colorado Plateau in central Utah, it's about six hours from us driving, you know, narrow roads going by Lake Powell. Capitol Reef, much like parts of Montezuma County, was originally planted by Mormon homesteaders. They went down Salt Lake to St. George on the western side of Utah, through the Grand Canyon, up through the hole in the rock. And some of them landed there in Capitol Reef and stayed there. Some of them came on towards Bluff over in Utah, just just west of us. And then some of them decided Bluff wasn't quite it. So they came over to uh, south of Mancus and Weber Canyon. Capitol Reef has the largest selection collection of orchards in the United States. Only some of those are really old. In uh, Weber Canyon is a great example of the the age of orchards that you're talking about, though. So Weber is south of the little town of Mancos in between Cortez and Dolores. The Mormons that moved down there moved there as a place where they would feel safe and be able to do sort of what they wanted to do. You got to remember Joseph Smith had been lynched not too far in the distant past before they moved in here. So they had a lot of reason to... to um, be worried about their safety. I think as a whole, they were pretty well accepted here and were active in the community. We see that quite a bit. So these orchards were planted around between 1890 and, and 1900. One of those orchards, and these are three, four acres, they have maybe 20 different cultivars in them, in some of these orchards. We could do a restoration project just on those alone. So that takes us right to um, the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project. You and Addie, you come together, you buy this nursery, you get all of these, you know, kind of interested comments or questions or requests for searches for these varieties. And, and you kind of, you know, open this Pandora's box, as it were, of like, oh, my gosh, all of this history, all of this diversity, where is it? What can we do to preserve it? At what point does it kind of coalesce for you and Addie that you are actually taking on a a big project of documenting, researching, and preserving this genetic diversity for the future? You know, when we started doing this initially, it was me going out. People would tell us about their, like I said, their grandparents' orchard, and we'd figure out where one is, and we'd go out in it. And Addie would work back at the nursery. We'd start doing pruning workshops and taking people out into the orchards and then learning to map. You know, we had to invent all of this as we went along. Addie, then as we decided to to roll up our private nursery and close that and just concentrate on it as Addie was able to spend more time out in the orchards too. She got the same same reaction that most people do when they when they see the orchards down here and that's oh my God, I can't believe how many trees there are. You know, Addie when when she was in high school, she had a job working Mountain Sun the large organic juice company Mountain Sun was founded here in Dolores, just north of Cortez. Um, it was the largest organic juice country juice company at the time when it was going. Addie had picked, you know, picked apples for Mountain Sun. So you drive around Montezuma County and you know the trees are here, but when you really stop and look at them and you really try to map them and try and put them in place and, and document them, then you just get utterly blown away by how much is here. It was a gradual thing of going from seeing these county fair records and seeing 50 different cultivars listed as being presented at a county fair to then going and saying, well, can we find some of these out in the old orchard, some of these now, and, and many of those 
varieties that we would see in county fair records, you couldn't find in nursery catalogs. They weren't in the fruit nut berry index from seed savers. So then it became, well, can we find some of these? And then how will we know them when we find them? Mm. And, and that's something we're still working on. Right. That's something that's going to go well past our lifetime of trying to figure this out. Right. So currently on your farm, have how many cultivars preserved? I think, and we should get a better count, we we probably have over 100 different cultivars on our farm, mm-hmm. over about four acres maybe, over at the historic gold metal orchard, which is a morph orchard across, across McElmo Canyon from us, we have over, boy, that's, that, that's, again, it's probably got, I don't know if we're up to 200 cultivars, total morpus and then we planted our our first six acres this summer at the new morp orchard hub the the first replanting of of land up at that historic location what we're really working on now we think there's probably between 150 and 200 different cultivars that we're working on that we propagate almost every year some years we do more of a single variety than others Though we sell trees, we're not a commercial nursery in a true sense. We kind of sell the trees that we can that we can let out that we've got enough preserved to to let go. So whereas a commercial nursery will be growing thousands of a single variety, on any given year we may be doing three to five of a single variety. Now over time, you know, five years ago we were doing really good to get two or three grafts out of a lot of these rarest trees. Mm-hmm. Now we're we're getting to the point to where we're getting ten grafts a year out of some of these rarest trees that we're working on. So it's it's progress, but it's really a slow process. This is Cultivating Place. The Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project is a nonprofit dedicated to the preservation of historic apple orchards and their genetic, economic, and environmental diversity in southwestern Colorado. Founded by Jude and Addie Schunemeyer, the endeavor represents more than 150 years of fruit tree cultivation in the region and decades of care by the Schunemeyers, tracing, documenting, and preserving not only the history, but the lives of these trees. Stay with us. We'll be back for more after a quick break. Hey, so can you believe we are already into the second month of this still new year on this old and generous planet? Here in our gardens, John and I are starting to see some of the perennial seeds we stowed last November start to emerge. Little green shoots and unfurling leaves of lupin seedlings, of sedalcia seedlings, and quite a lot of little green spikes that are harvest brodea babies. We had broccoli from the cool winter garden for dinner this last week, and we're collecting our seeds for the spring sowings that will start soon. I'm wondering what you're seeing emerge in your garden. What seeds you're sowing this season where you are, undercover or directly into the cool ground? If you feel like sharing, I'd love to hear. You know how to reach me, cultivatingplace at gmail.com or leave me a comment on this week's post on Instagram. 
and happy February. In this moment, at the beginning of this month, in what is called Imbolc in the Gaelic tradition, that moment in the circle of the year that is halfway between the winter solstice and the vernal equinox, when the light and the warmth that comes with it is very apparently returning to our days and to our daily energy. As a gardener, the dormancy and rest of winter is so necessary and welcome to all the life forms we honor. But the return of the light and the first green signs of the season to come, well, these two are cause for reverence and revelry. Enjoy. I'm Jennifer Jewell, this is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with Jude Schoenemeyer of Colorado's Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project, preserving and sharing forward a vision of southwestern Colorado as the hub of a restored and thriving apple orchard culture and economy. As we come back, Jude continues his description of the physical scope of MORP's historic apple orchards and project, and he gets into the longer history of apple species, crosses, and cultivars, and some basics around grafting. So there's our own orchard, which MORP gets all the benefit, and uh, most of the fruit goes into the juicing, and it's a cyan wood source. Then across from McElmo Canyon from us is the historic gold metal orchard, which the original date on that goes back to about 1890. Then we have the Dolores Community Orchard in the town of Dolores, which is a small, slightly under an acre, you know, 50, 60 trees in there. And then we have the new orchard hub out at, uh, it's what we call the Morp Orchard Hub. This is a 36-acre farm in between Cortez and Dolores that we were able to buy about two years ago. We also we also have uh, different community orchards. We have orchards in the, we have a 70-tree orchard in the middle school. There's orchards at the elementary schools in the Cortez School District, um, which we go out and do work with the kids. The last couple of years, because of the pandemic, that really slowed down for us to where we weren't going out and working with those kids. But this winter, we should be back in the orchards Yay. doing this again. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and that's really important to us. It's it's a big thing for us to to be working with kids from a very early age and and keep going with them to show them you know, fruit does grow on trees. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have a barcode to eat something. Right. So give us a quick little biological review, because you've mentioned a lot of terms and, um, and a, a couple of, of facts, but let's put them together to just remind listeners. Almost all of our apples in the U.S., come from one species, and they are cultivars of that Malus domestica. Yes? Sort of all yeah. most of our apples are so most of our apples in this country are, are that are that are commercially grown are Malus domestica with a few outliers there. Malus domestica is a cross. This is where the apples originally are believed to have come from Kazakhstan area where you had Malus severesi, and then as Malus severesi left Central Asia and headed out, it crossed with Malus orientalis. And then um, a couple other species in Europe, and that's what gave us the bigger, more tasty apple. We know now from from DNA 
most apples, most of the malice domestica apples that we eat trace back to just what it's what they call founders. Mm -hmm. So like the René de France, the French René is one of the grandmothers of almost every modern American apple. It's a 500 year old cultivar. Again, there are some differences like Spanish apples are different. So one of the things we would love to do and you know, it's a different time and project would be to try and trace some of the fruit that went from Spain through Mexico and up and see if we can find any of that older, more different genetics in there. Mm -hmm. But, but from a practical standpoint, most of the apples are, are, are of the Malus domestica species. And so this crossing to crossing to crossing is one of the reasons that apples don't come true from seed uh, reliably or, or not the cultivars we we think we want to get, which is what leads to, um, in one way, is what leads to the need to graft and take cuttings so that you get the cultivar you think you are wanting. Exactly. I tend to think of grafting as one of the greater human achievements mm -hmm. for, for people to sit there. No one knows for sure how far back grafting goes, at least a couple thousand years. It's difficult to, to say for sure. Imagine the patience of somebody sitting under a tree in Kazakhstan and realizing <laughs> that the fruit, you know, they might see all of these little trees underneath a big tree and they might be able to observe that the fruit on all of these different little trees is significantly different from the fruit on the big tree that they have there. And so I can see how they would have realized that, okay, I'm not going to get the same thing if I plant a seed. That still would take quite a bit of uh -huh. observation. Uh -huh. And then from there, I would suspect, and this is just me, me stipulating that, you know, perhaps they're sitting there underneath their, underneath their tree, you know, looking up at the forest and looking at the trees and in the branches. And this is where the careful observation of plants is so important they would see how branches actually fuse themselves together. If you go go out, you can see natural grafting occurring in the world. You know, you can see it on apple trees. You can see it on other trees as well. And that still is a great leap to go, okay, I see nature doing that. Now how am I going to do it? It's a really tremendous step of human ingenuity, I, I believe, yeah. to, to do that. Will you describe what it takes to cut a scion and then graft it onto a different rootstock and to what purpose you do that? Sure. So again, scion is, is ideally it's last year's growth, water shoots, nice clean vegetative growth. You can't always get that on an old tree. You get a lot of clean growth on trees that are pruned. So if the tree hasn't been pruned in decades, it's not going to give you a lot of clean cyan. So the first part of, of cyan and grafting is cyan collecting. And that is a tremendous skill and art form in and of itself. If you're working in a new orchard that gets pruned a lot, it's fish in a barrel. It's really easy to go out and get a lot of cyan. If you're working on really old trees, you can spend a half hour or more looking up at a tree, walking around it, walking around it, you know, your, your head craned up. <laughs> Try to find one little teeny stick, if you're lucky, or one little tip of a stick that you can use for grafting. So we go out, we'll start doing this pretty soon here. 
by January and we start collecting cyan and, and we just collect, 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 collect until we have enough for a thousand to fifteen hundred trees. The last couple of years we used to do about fifteen hundred grafts a year, sometimes a little more. The last couple of years we brought it down to a thousand or slightly under a thousand, just so we could get a little better control over the nursery with us doing so many other big big capital projects going on. So we collect we collect the cyan this time of year. We wrap it up nicely, moist paper towel, put it in a plastic bag so it stays moist, put it in a refrigerator, and then we can hold the cyan like that for for months at a time. Then as we get our rootstocks in and, and we do use commercial growers for rootstocks. You can grow your own rootstock from seed if you want to. For us, it adds a whole nother step in the process, you know, in a whole nother year of, of growing. And we're not really, it's just easier for us to get consistently grown rootstock from up in the Northwest there. Um, there's some really good growers doing that. So we get the rootstock that comes in somewhere around March, and then we just kind of lock ourselves away for a month to six weeks and we just graft 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 every day we do what's called we we predominantly do what's called a whip and tongue style grafting it's also the style of grafting that we teach when we do grafting classes some people get intimidated about it for a long time people were afraid to teach whip and tongue because you're making a lot of cuts with a really sharp knife and you're bringing the knife to you towards you. And if you graft enough, you're going to get cut. <laughs> There's no way around that. Our reason for teaching it and for grafting whip and tongue is that it's a stronger, it's a, it's a, it's a stronger graft union. A lot of commercial grafters, I mean, a lot of it is done with budding now where they're just taking a single butt off in the summer from a plant and, and inserting that onto a rootstock. And a lot of people that do graft though, they do either cleft grafting or a whipping or a, uh, just a simple splice type grafting. And those are okay, but they are not as strong because we work on so many rare varieties and sometimes we don't get a chance to get back to the trees easily. We have to be able to get the grafts to go. We got to do the best we can by, by them. And so the whip and tongue is really important to us. So we, we graft, we do, you know, a, a good normal day is in whip and tongue is not as fast of a style of grafting. So, you know, if, if Addie and I are both out working together, we're probably around a hundred to 120 a day. We've had some 150, 160 graft days. I think my best day grafting is probably around 120 by myself. And <laughs> yep. at that point, your hand's about to fall off. So they get grafted, then they get put into plastic tub containers into a cold room here in this, in this uh, building in the shed where we graft to where they are allowed to callus. They're kept cold. We put moist paper towels over and we check them every few days and, and spray them with water or xeritol, which is hydrogen dioxide, which just helps to decrease any, any disease pathogens that might be there in the, in the trees on the, on the graft. And they sit, they sit for sometimes, you know, depending on the time of year, they can sit for a month or they can sit for a couple of months if it stays consistently cool and consistently dark. As it starts to warm up, even in this cold room, and there's more hours of daylight, you know, they start pushing bud. And that's when we take them out. They're all nicely wrapped in little little bundles. And we take those bundles out and move them into the greenhouse. And then they all get potted up into pots. Um, We've been using to to save on soil and space and pots. We we put 
you know, five graphs in a, in a three gallon pot so that if one dies, we haven't wasted a whole pot on, on a single tree. I know other people use like the tubes and the sleeves and those little square, square pots. Um, but we, we let them then sit in our unheated, our, we use our greenhouse as a cold frame. It's got a 55% white shade on it. So it doesn't get too blindingly hot in there. Mm -hmm. We have fans for ventilation and they get potted up and then they sit in there for about a year and then the following spring they get potted into individual pots so it's it's a labor intensive process and it's a real time consuming process and it is something that you got to be patient with and you've got to have kind of the space to to really let them go and do and and realize everything isn't going to happen it's not growing trees. It's not like growing lettuce. You know, you've got to be looking longer with everything you do. Right. And so then these babies go go out into either your orchards or they go out into um, like events where they're distributed to people who might be interested in growing them. You, in that way, sort of duplicate and give yourself some redundancy in some of these uh cultivars being out growing and, and producing and existing. This is a lot of work, Jude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> why, why are you doing it? What is the importance of rekindling, recultivating these trees, these cultivars, and this diversity right there in Montezuma County? For us, this is always about the future. You know, when we plant trees, when we grow trees, we think about how we want the world to look 100 years from now. Growing trees, you you have to look longer. You, you have to have a certain amount of patience with you. You have to be willing to, to let things develop. And so it's just better for us to be thinking about the world 100 years out and what we want it to be. These these varieties, these cultivars did not go bad because they they did not come to near extinction because they did not grow well here. They grew well here. They didn't. They didn't go nearly extinct because people didn't like them. People do like them. Um, people's taste changed and the world went into a more commodity market with fewer varieties, you know, and that caused a lot of these to go off. The problem with a lot of those commodity ones, especially for an area that's remote like we are, you are trying to compete on a commodity market when you're in a remote place with increased shipping cost and ability to get your product out, out um, to market. There's also the factor of genetically, these trees are not super diverse. They're all, like I said, so many of them are, are ancestors of the Rene Franche, but they are very different in terms of their cultivar ability to ripen earlier, ripen later, um, to be able to be really good keepers, to be able to be good for sauce or good for drying, you know, the million things that apples were used for. And we are in a place that is, you know, we are in one of the poorer counties in Colorado and one of the more remote. And we feel like it's really important that people have the ability to grow food that they can eat. We feel like it's really important for people to have economic opportunities from agriculture. This is an old agricultural area. And, and so that's, that's the big motivation of doing it. We, we feel like these trees are the future and not just the past. And so you know, one of the things that I want to just highlight there about what you said is that in preserving this diversity, you, you 
you are shoring up and securing for uh, that's I'm going to be redundant there, but you are ensuring food security, economic security, beauty and taste security going forward in in this region of our world. And from there, just as you've documented that in the past, what you are growing there has also been grown to some extent in Maine or in um, the, the Pacific Northwest. And so what you do there can help inform and contribute to this same kind of security in other parts of our world that are unhitched from the dependence on a, a commodity market. I, I believe that to be true, you know, and I believe it's not only the cultivars we grow, but also part of this goes back to the rootstock and how we grow. There's there's the old cultivars themselves, and most of what we grow on is on Malus domestica, which is seedling rootstock, which means it's going to produce really big, old-looking trees as they grow up, mm. you know, trees that'll be 20, 25 feet tall and wide or, or bigger. What's relevant about this is that these trees also have root systems underneath them that can be 25 or 30 feet or bigger underneath the tree. We are in here in southwest Colorado. We are in a 20-year drought. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's a 20-year drought, and it's not looking like it's going to change anytime soon and that things are all going to get miraculously better. Mm -hmm. These old trees have a lot better ability to survive these changes that are happening with us and we believe that they will over time have a much bigger ability to uh to keep growing and, and be um be a important part of the landscape and an important resource for people over time so the the there's the economic ability for people to do it but that ties directly in with the environmental aspect of this that we are creating and within our orchards Orchards are ecosystems. Mm -hmm. You know, you have these big trees, but then underneath the trees, ideally, you have, you know, pretty diverse grasses and wildflowers, different pollinators in there, so that the the soil is not open, it's not bare. The soil can be used as a as a bank for moisture, so that we're protecting the moisture in the soil bank, um, and that we're able to go from, you know, we're we're able to protect our water resource and the cultivar resource, both without without water, none of this is going to happen and none of this is going to matter. That's a pretty beautiful feedback, a positive trophic cascade, as it were, of, of benefits from uh, protecting and preserving these uh, these treasures of, of trees and, and cultivars. Yeah, it it feels good to do what we do. I, I bet mean, it, it's kind of an abstract thing from a nonprofit standpoint of uh, grant writing. It doesn't have the same <laughs> easy grant writing as uh, you know we're making the world better by doing whatever you know food security. All those there are so many things that that are able to get a lot of funding, and we're always just a little bit outside of most people's boxes. Um, but in terms of the quality of the work that we get to do and the importance, I, I absolutely believe in what we're doing and that what we do matters. Yeah. I, I, having having been to your orchards, having been to a distribution event uh, there in Mancus, uh two years ago, and I think one of your trees is now happily growing in, in an orchard of ours here, uh, I am just, I am always bowled over by how um 
how regenerative this project is for uh, this fruit kind and this cultivation um, tradition and history that has um, so much to it. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today and, and the work you are doing there at the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project. I am uh, just thrilled to follow along. Well, thank you so much for the time and thanks for having us on. Jude and Addie Schoenemeyer are the founders of the nonprofit Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project in Montezuma County, Colorado. The two have spent decades discovering, researching, documenting, protecting, restoring, and propagating the rich diversity of heritage apple varieties and orchards in southwestern Colorado. The diversity of apple genetics in this region go back 150 years or more, and the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project, affectionately referred to as MORP, is preserving historic orchards and simultaneously cultivating food, economic, and environmental vigor in their region. For my full conversation with Jude, including more on the lessons we can take personally and globally from the historic and genetic work of MORP, make sure to check out this week's podcast version of the program at cultivatingplace.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of plants and place, this week we have not my voice, but a return to the voice of Jude Schunemeyer of the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project with his list of apple varieties to know more about, to grow, to eat, and to love. If you were to introduce the listeners to five of your rare cultivars that you think are particularly good, whether it's for taste or baking or keeping or hard cider, what would those be, Jude? One of them I would say right off is one called Senator. It was originally called All Over because it was red all over and then it got renamed to Oliver. And then when Stark found this tree, they renamed it to Senator. This was a tree that came out about the same time as the Delicious and it's one that Stark really thought was going to be a good one. Unfortunately, it got swept up by by the monoculture that happened shortly after. It is one of the best fresh eating apples you'll ever have. It's sub acid. It is just blow away. It's a beautiful apple, red with with uh, russeted spots on it. It's just gorgeous and it's really flavorful. And the trees are beautiful as they get old. They get really shaky bark. So that would be one. Um, another one that's that's not as rare, but you're not going to see it real commonly in in most n- normal nurseries. You could you could find it online. Is the Shenango strawberry? Shenango strawberry is a summer apple. It's a fairly it has a long harvest period on it so they don't all come ripe at once Um, we've seen some of them hanging into trees even in october though they start to ripen in august Um, most of the time by october they're not very good it's oblong much like a delicious sometimes old timers would call it strawberry delicious but it's it's really a shenango strawberry that's a great one I think winter apple. Part of part of what you're asking is is also 
goes hand in hand with what are you going to do with the apples and how is this going to work right. for you as a grower? Um, so I think that it's really important to have an early summer apple like the Shenango or Yellow Transparent. Again, it's not the rarest apple in the world, but it's very well flavored when it's ripe. When it's not ripe, it's either too tart or too mealy, but when it's perfect, it's really an exceptional culinary, culinary apple. Um, I would be thinking about a few winter apples. I mean, the Colorado orange, the few times that we've gotten to have fruit on it is a really high quality, late keeping winter apple. Um, another one that we found that is again, a, a winter apple, and I will caution everyone with this, winter apples right off the tree tend to not be blow away flavor. They are there to sit. They are there to go in the root cellar and to open up over time. So one of the first of the old apples that we ever found here was an apple called Thunderbolt. And it's a big, can be fairly big when it's well-grown um, oblate. So it's flat on the top and the bottom, russeted apple that right off the tree, if it hasn't frosted, it's sort of an average, whatever, you don't get too excited about it. But after a hard freeze or, or in storage, it gets this sort of explosive brisk acidity to it. So a, a T-bolt would be a great one for a winter one. The the Colorado orange, I obviously pretty high on is a, is a winter one also. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, there's some other ones to think about that, you know, you want to have some fall apples and there's the more common, the Johnny's and the Max in there, the Senator would certainly fall into this. Um, there are some, let me think. There, there are, uh, I'm trying to think of which fall ones we've seen in a while. That would be really, really good. Let me, let me think on that. Um, there are some other winter ones like Rawls Janae. There, a lot of the, you, what you got to remember is that a lot of the summer and the fall ones were really meant for fresh eating and not to be kept a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, they would, they were, they were meant to go, go pretty fast. The winter ones are the ones that we get to see on trees and we get to play with more. Um, Rawls Janae is another old fashioned uh, winter apple, very dense, very hard, like biting a marble when when it's not ripe in mm-hmm. September. But if you if you let it go until later, you know November, December, it is almost like honey on the inside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, another another apple I love is a seedling we found, which would be another sort of later fall. It's called uh, Six Finger Jack. It was near found near that's the seedling found near the cabin of this person six finger who had six fingers on each hand thus the name six finger jack we know genetically it's a cross between uh delicious and jonathan um it's a big blocky heavily sugar apple there's another seedling we found on a on a fall apple that we call purple mountain majesty it's a cross between a macintosh and a delicious so it's got some of the delicious sweetness but it's more that softer texture of a mac um but with that spready acidity to it that that is really enjoyable um you know so those those would all be great ones to do um there's there's ones like mammoth black twig is another big big one um an apple that like delicious gets badly abused reputation wise is ben davis ben davis isn't the best apple you'll ever have but it's a late keeping winter apple it's a great one that people should have in an orchard if they have the long growing season for it um it's really as it sits longer, it becomes a fairly high quality apple. And most people don't think about it, you know, like delicious. It's just got such a bad reputation that people, people don't think about it a lot, but it's actually a a decent apple when well-grown, especially if it can fully ripen. Nice. Beautiful. 
what is your favorite apple to to bake with yours and Addie's? You know, that's we always use a mixture because our orchard has so many different ones. There's oh, not nice. a single there's not a single apple okay. um, that we like. One one that I love that's not considered a baking apple. We eat it fresh, but it does bake really well too, is winter bananas, another fall apple, sort of later fall apple. That's just a beautiful, beautiful quality, um, very well flavored, excellent apple. Um, but yeah, the best thing with baking is just to have a mix of them. It really allows you to get, and I feel like that's true of cider. I know a lot of cider makers are doing single origin ciders, but when you blend, you get the sugars of some, you get the acidities of others, you can get a little tannin off of something. So it comes right back to uh, preserving the diversity all the way around. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And listen in towards the end of February when Cultivating Place will be joined by another apple lover, James Rich, a third generation orchardist and cook whose new book, Orchard, offers delicious views into both growing and eating these beloved winter fruits. Join us next week when we celebrate Valentine's Day and African American Heritage Month in conversation with Abra Lee, an Atlanta-based horticulturalist whose extensive work internationally writing and consulting and on-the-ground work at Atlanta's Oakland Cemetery, a historic garden cemetery, is a love letter to the deep roots of African American knowledge and joy in American horticulture. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.